Testing, testing. You want the other one? Go ahead. All right. Can you hear me? Thank you. Um, I don't know. Hello? We want to make it as okay. easy for you as possible. Well, public speaking for me is not easy. So uh, it's not my favorite thing to do. And if I trip up on my words and lose my place, which very well might happen, please bear with me because I am not a professional. Um, if I was to be up here and have an accident and wet my pants, please don't point and laugh because that wouldn't be very nice, especially at me. However, if that was to happen to someone such as Pastor Stan, that would be hilarious. <laughs> and please feel free to point, laugh, take pictures, put them on Facebook, Instagram. I'm sure you won't mind. So let's just recap. If I'm up here and wet my pants, you do nothing. If Stan does, open season. Amen. So um, I gave this talk about three years ago, but this time I'm going to expand on what I've uh, talked about. Um, and basically I'm going to go over uh, part of the history of this project that I've been involved with. Um, I'm going to talk about uh, what we do there, how it, how it takes place, um, and I'm going to talk about a little bit about life in a batay. Is this, is this okay? All right. And then I'm going to go over a typical day on what we do down there. So I'll start with the history of this project. Um, Pastor John Luke Fenord was born in Port-au-Prince, Haiti in 1952. And he graduated from seminary in 1979. Uh, after graduation, he and his wife, Elsa, moved to La Romana with his, uh, to serve as pastor in the Haitian Missionary Baptist Church. It's called Maranatha Baptist Church. Maranatha Baptist Church was first established in the 1930s when thousands of Haitian farmers were transported to La Romana. A new large-scale plantation was starting up in the Dominican Republic and workers were needed. These were the first Haitians in the region and soon after the, the men were brought over, their families followed. The Haitian Baptist Association saw the need for a church where the Haitians could build a Christian community and worship God with the customs familiar to them. You're doing a good job, Eric. Be sure to look up at the audience to make good eye contact. <laughs> at the time of Pastor Luke Fenord's arrival, there were no educational opportunities or healthcare opportunities. Soon after arriving in La Romana, he established 21 churches, mostly in the Batays, uh, in the surrounding communities. He had a heart for the sugarcane workers and their families. He did all that he could to help improve their lives as well as uplift the Haitian community and to improve the Haitian image in Dominican society. Growing up and witnessing the poor conditions himself, Pastor Fenord made it his mission to save children from sugarcane slavery. 
he realized the best way to do this was through education. He sought help from American organizations as a means to uh, help provide education and escape for children in the harsh, harsh conditions of sugar harvesting. After many years of cumulative efforts by both churches and schools, Pastor Bernard was able to make significant changes in the areas. Mission teams started coming down uh, to La Romana in 1983. The first was a construction team assigned to build a church in the Batay known as Kakata. The next was a medical team. It was the doctor on that medical mission team that encouraged Jean-Luc to build a medical clinic for the people in that Batay, singular. In 1985, Recognizing the need for, excuse me, healthcare in the impoverished areas of La Romana, the Batay's plural, he had a vision for a hospital and created the John Luke Fenord Foundation to help fund the Good Samaritan Hospital in La Romana. He campaigned tirelessly through the U.S. gaining support for this project, and he would go to the United States and talk with groups and churches like yourself, and he would tell about all the projects that he was working on, and people would say, oh, here, here's some money. And uh, as much as he appreciated the donations, what he really wanted to do was have people come down and see the projects for themselves that they were working on. So he wanted them to experience it. In 1986, Pastor Fenord, assisted by Rodney Hendrickson of the Abington, Massachusetts Church, went to the annual minister's meeting at the Central Romana Sugar Company, the sugarcane company down there, with the intention of asking for a parcel of land to build a clinic or a hospital. After all, it was these people that they were trying to help who could use the health care, these people that were working in their sugarcane batés. Central Romana thought it was a joke they literally looked at him and said, you're kidding, right? So that was kind of a uh, detriment to what he wanted to do. However, a seed was planted because as he was leaving, a gentleman from Central Rwanda approached him and said, hey, I kind of like this idea. Let me see if I can find a piece of land for you. So he took that as a sign and he hired an architect to design the ultimate hospital. If you're gonna dream big, you're gonna dream big, right? So uh, this was potentially, he didn't even know if he had the land yet, it was potentially gonna be a once in a lifetime opportunity to gain a piece of land. And so he had this picture of a five story hospital uh, that was done up and actually is still hanging in the hospital now. So, in February of 1988, Pastor Fenord signed a contract for the design and engineering of the hospital. In October of that year, Central Romana had the land surveyed and drawings of the land were sent to a lawyer. On April 15, 1989, the church had the title to the land and started clearing it. So it took over two years to obtain that land, and that land was literally a dump. It was an area where people in the community would go and throw their trash bags over this barrier, and that was the land that they were given. 
Now, uh, I have a hard time seeing the forest to the trees, but Pastor Fenord did not. And he looked at that as an opportunity. So in February of 1990, the church from Abington started to pour the footings for the new hospital that would rise from that land. So the main team uh, first became involved in 1992. And at that time, there were only seven churches that were involved in this mission, uh, mission trip. Uh, the hospital was dedicated in 1997, operating out of the ground floor, functioning primarily as a clinic. And by 1999, uh, news had spread by word of mouth mainly, uh, there were 17 groups. So today, there's over 80 groups that go down, visiting over 135 different patés, representing the majority of states across the country. Uh, totaling more than 1,500 volunteers annually. There's three major hospitals in La Romana. Good Samaritan is the only private one, uh, excuse me, the only public one, excuse me. The other two are private, and Good Samaritan is the only teaching hospital as well. So one of the cool things that they do is when they know that there's going to be a team from the United States coming down, say it's going to be eye surgeries, they'll invite eye surgeons from the other hospitals to come over and uh, learn, learning opportunities. The other two do not reciprocate. Um, there's never a shortage of providers that want to work there. Um, they have one of the most respected reputations in the, excuse me, in the entire eastern region and are the only ones to be able to offer dialysis. So La Romana has become a cruise port uh, cruises go down, and one of the stays there is right in, uh, right down the, the street from where we stay, the cruise ships will dock. And that has allowed people to get off the cruise ship, go to the hospital, and get dialysis. They do their dialysis, go back on the cruise ship, and then they go off to wherever it is that they're going next. Um, we all know what happened in 9-11. Most of us, I see young kids. But, and that was a horrible event, but uh, in October, right, a month after that, there was another plane crash that um, happened in Queens. And that was a plane that was bound for Santa Domingo, and unfortunately, um, Pastor Fenord was on that plane, and he passed. Now I get weepy. But I would like to think that his legacy has lived on and done very well, and that he would be proud. Okay, so I've been talking over the history. Um, I've only scratched the surface, but uh, for almost 25 years now, I've been involved um, in this missionary project down in La Ramana in the Dominican Republic. So, La Romana, is it me or is it a little, little out of focus? But that's okay. La Romana is one of the three major cities along the um, southern coast of the Dominican. We've got Santa Domingo right here, which is the capital. And then San Pedro is right above La Romana. It's about a half hour away. 
La Romana, and then all the way to the uh, far east is Punta Cana. That's where a lot of the resorts have sprung up literally over the past 10 years. Um, La Romana, for reference, is about the size of Greater Portland, um, but it's got three, three and a half times the population in it. So it's very, very crowded, congested. Uh, Don, if you want to start the thing. Um, every year during the last part of January, first part of February, a team from Maine volunteers on this short-term mission trip that involves both construction and medical team. The construction team continues work on the Good Samaritan Hospital in the city, which is a state-of-the-art, fully functioning hospital by Dominican standards. It's been open since 1997. Now, you wouldn't go into Good Samaritan and think Midcoast Hospital. You can't compare the two or Main Med or anything like that because it's Dominican standards and they are not our own. But it's a, I would be very, um, I would not hesitate to go there if I needed to. Uh, the medical team, which includes providers, nurses, dental and pharmacy staff, as well as others, serve as part of a mobile health care clinic traveling to various uh, barrios and batets in and around the city. Some of the projects that the construction team worked on uh, this year included pouring four concrete columns on the fifth floor, I believe, uh, new oxygen tank foundations, parking lot line painting, duct demo in the patient rooms to make way for a new heating and cooling system, plus the movement of sand, cement, crushed rock, and concrete. My buddy Ernie is a numbers guy, facts and figures, and he figured that based on the total weight of all the supplies divided by the number of members on the construction team, each member moved about 7,000 pounds over the week. And compare that to the medical team, which saw a measly 412 patients. Usually we see about 600, uh, maybe even more, but we haven't gone for the past two years because of some virus or something, I don't know. <laughs> now, tourism, Ever since the mid-80s, tourism has taken off and become the primary moneymaker for the entire country. They've got beaches, well, with the map, they've got beaches on three-quarters of the sides of the country, and um, it's a very good economic moneymaker for them. So before tourism took off, up until the mid-80s, agriculture was their biggest export. That was what drove the economy. So the Dominican Republic is well known for um, their coffee and tobacco, but their biggest moneymaker is sugar. So currently, the United States imports about 17% of its sugar uh, from the Dominican Republic. So let me ask you this. Who do you think does the work, the majority of work on a batay? Haitians. The Dominican Republic in Haiti has had quite a political and racial history. And I won't get into all that, but that would be a whole nother wormhole. Working in a batay is considered beneath 
the typical Dominican. The government, in the face of watchdog groups and human rights organizations, says that the typical uh, Bate has about 20% Dominicans living and working on it and 80% Haitian. But I've never seen that reality. Um, I would say it's more 5% Dominicans or less. Primary work done in a Bate is by Haitians. So if Dominicans aren't willing to work in a cane field and the country needs that revenue for its exports, what do they do? They recruit. How do they do that? Well, they'll send buses across the border to Haiti, find uh, men that are looking for work, and they'll make all these ridiculous promises, such as, we will give you housing, we will give you food, we will give you money, and all these promises for people to sign a contract. And then when they get across the border and they're get assigned to a batay, they quickly realize that they were shanghai The promises um, that they were expecting weren't there. So let's go back a little bit, say 1950. And a Haitian worker who was born in Haiti crosses the border. He has, uh, he has a birth certificate. He crosses the border and he goes to work in a batay. And maybe he's been there for a year or so and meets a nice young lady and they fall in love and they have a baby. That child grows up <laughs> with no birth certificate, no passport, no access to a passport. Um, no government recognition, and uh, primarily they don't exist. Yet the government relies on them to do the work in the cane fields to make the money for the exports. So practically they're ghosts. Um, these are the forgotten people of the Dominican Republic that the country depends on. These are the people that John Luke was serving and these are the people that we see when we go to the clinics. For those that have never been to the Dominican Republic, what do you picture? Well, the government wants you to picture resorts and palm trees and beautiful beaches and sunsets. The Dominican Republic is the number one travel destination uh, in all the Caribbean. Your dollar goes much further there than it will go in, say, Aruba or Jamaica. Who I want to take you. Thank you for laughing at my humor. I appreciate that. Uh, it's nice and warm. Uh, in January, it averages about 84 degrees. Uh, maybe you're lounging poolside or on the beach and you've got a nice cold drink in your hand and soft merengue music is playing in the back. Doesn't sound so bad, does it? Now let me point out that this is the second poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, only behind Haiti, and they just so happen to share the same island. So now, 
what kind of images come to your mind if I tell you the name of some of the pâtés that we've been to? Such as Kakata, which translates to the spider. Tokonos de Kakata. I live in a town near the spider. Lechuga, lettuce. Malagua, bad water. Peligro, danger. Mosquito, obviously. And Las Cejas, which translates to the eyebrow. These places don't seem so nice, do they? And these are the places that the government doesn't want you to know about. So I've been talking about pâtés, and so what's a pâté? Okay. Close your eyes and picture in your mind you're traveling down this road outside the city in an old, bumpy, rickety school bus. After a while, you take a random turn onto an unmarked dirt road and proceed further for what seems to be like forever. And all you can see is tall sugarcane in every direction. You're surrounded by it. And up in the distance, you see a village that pops out of nowhere with small shanty houses, the kind that you see on those Save the Children infomercials. No cars in sight. Trash and filth everywhere. The smell of burning trash wafts through the air. There's no clean drinking water. Only community houses. Chickens, dogs, goats running around. Lots of young children, many of them half naked. Okay, open your eyes. That, my friends, is sugarcane village that we call a bate. And those are the types of places that we go to. Uh, life on a bate. Um, for men, it's bleak. And it's bleak because your future is right outside your window. If you have a window. Uh, you're basically working in the cane fields uh, during the harvest season. The harvest season is October through May. And that's when all the production ramps up for the cane fields. You're expected to put in 14-hour days before sunup. Uh, and you'll come back uh, as the sun sets. And you're out in the fields working in hot 90-degree, 100-degree weather. And you're doing back-breaking labor for about the equivalent of $12 a day. And that's your future, and that's what you've got. Um, and you have to support your family on that. During the off-season, you do whatever you can um, to make money. If you have a skill set that could be used in the city, if you can get to the city. But the primary job is, is harvesting cane. Uh, women, life on a bate is not... Um, glamorous at all. It's, it's basically taking care of the family, uh, taking care of the household, kids. Um, speaking of kids, uh, 
I will say this, education is provided. Every, every child in the Dominican Republic, uh, whether you're Dominican or Haitian, is allotted a free public education. However, there's a caveat. You have to be able to afford the uniform and you have to have shoes. And if you're a Batay kid, you gotta have a school nearby. There's not a lot of them out there. So some of the bigger Batays will have a school and if there's nearby Batays, the kids can walk there. But sometimes these kids are traveling like four or five miles on foot to go to school. Well, that's all well and good, but if they can't afford the uniform, guess what? You can't go to school. So the government is actually, I will give them credit, they are stepping up and trying to put more schools in the Batays. They're building new ones and they're having um, government teachers come out and work for them. I have a couple friends that are teachers on Batay schools. Um, so I will give them credit for that, but I will not give them credit for um, beyond a sixth grade education. I have never seen a secondary school out on a Batay. There might be, I've just never seen one. So, so an education goes up to sixth grade, so kids are like 12, 13. Um, and then once they graduate there, it's, it's Kane, um, which is really unfortunate. Um, how am I doing? So if I go over, I apologize, no charge for the extra. Um, our base camp, for lack of a better word, is called Casa Pastoral, uh, which stands for Pastor's House. And it's a courtyard actually behind the house. And uh, that's where we have breakfast and supper. We'll have lunch out in the cane fields, or if the construction team, they'll have lunch at the hospital. And that's where we sleep as well. So uh, picture summer camp, great big rooms with bunk beds everywhere. And that's what it's like. Uh, girls in one room with their own bathroom, guys on, in another room with their own bathroom. Uh, we have a team of lovely ladies who do um, all of our cooking and they'll do our laundry for us and they'll take care of us in that way. As well as a 24 hour watchman service uh, so, uh, looking out for our safety. A typical day starts by waking up for me around six o'clock, but for others when the rooster crows around four. Um, we meet in the courtyard around quarter of seven for a devotion. Uh, breakfast is at seven o'clock. And then after breakfast, uh, we load up our buses separate buses for construction team and medical team. Uh, after breakfast, we, um, we, bring our own, excuse me, we bring our own providers, nurses, pharmacy staff, and others as well as local translators, not to mention our own supplies and medications, um, and drive out to wherever it is that we're gonna go for that day. Every day we go to a different pate or barrio. Uh, once we get there, we set up our clinic usually in a church on the Pate or a school if there is one. Um, we determine where intake will be, where patients will be seen, where the pharmacy will be located, where patients will be waiting, where the deworming medicine will be, 
things like that. And then we do a quick devotion and we're ready to start. Patients have been notified that there will be a team coming beforehand. And oftentimes they'll be waiting for us. There'll be like maybe 30 people lined up by the time we get, uh, get there all ready to go. Patients are interviewed asking what they're here to see a provider for. Um, then they get weighed. Their vital signs are taken, uh, as well as a blood sugar reading if they're diabetic. And then they wait to see a provider. Now, to you and I, this would seem pretty rudimentary because by our standards it is. But oftentimes it's the only chance that these people would ever get a chance to uh, be seen by a doctor. Um, you know, you gotta remember that these people live miles away from any type of public service and they don't have access to get into town. Um, so basically, they're trapped. After the visit with a provider, they go to the pharmacy. That's where my team and I come in. Um, and we take the patient cards with their information and orders on it. We see a lot of need for over-the-counter products like things that you and I would consider basic Tylenol, ibuprofen, uh, stomach medicine, vitamins, things like that. But we do bring, um, we do dispense a lot of antibiotics, uh, blood pressure medicines, diabetes medicines, um, and topical products as well. So we figure we bring about $8,000 worth of just prescription medications down with us when we go on our trip. That doesn't include any uh, over-the-counter donations. Last but not least, uh, once the patient has received their prescriptions, we give them what we call our parting gift. And that could be a bar of soap, a toothbrush and toothpaste, maybe a little bottle of shampoo, uh, things like that. So if you ever go to a hotel and you see those little travel things, save them for me, I would appreciate it. And again, these items might be considered throwaway to us, but to them, it's greatly appreciated. Uh, the cost for this trip, it's not cheap. It's about $2,100, give or take. But that includes your airfare, it includes your housing arrangements, and your meals. The only thing it doesn't include is your personal spending money. A passport is required. Uh, if you don't have one and you're thinking about it, uh, it does take a little bit of time to get one, maybe like two or three months. This trip can definitely be an eye-opening experience. It can be both heartwarming and heartbreaking. Uh, it can be loud and chaotic, but it's always worth it. And it's definitely life-changing. Uh, it's a great opportunity to step outside your comfort zone and use your skills in sharing God's love. Uh, I've grown from these trips, definitely. I'm working on learning to be patient. I'm working on learning to be satisfied. 
Despite my chronic immaturity, uh, I've learned humility and to count my blessings. Uh, besides sharing God's love through service, donations can be used to help both with the cost of the trip as well as supplies that we bring. And we ask for prayers for not only the planning committee as we get the ball rolling for this next year's trip uh, come later on this month, but also that the trip goes smoothly and safely come January. Thank you. Um, if we have time for questions, that's great. If not, uh, I can talk about it more outside. But I do want to share this. Um, so I found this book online. It's called The Tragic Journey of the Sugarcane Cutters. And it explains um, some of what I talked about. But it's also uh, a good reference to get the impressions from Bate workers as well, from their point of view on the things that they've gone through and the trials and tribulations that they've experienced. It's, it's a quick read, it's an easy read. I bought a couple copies for the church to have on hand and you're more than welcome to use them. Thank you. Questions. Don, if you could turn on this microphone, I'm going to hand them to the questioners. First one. So what chance do um, you have to share the gospel with these people? Is there, is there any kind of part that involved with it at all? Absolutely. Um, so as part of the mission trip, any batay that we go to is considered uh, Christian. And I will, um, so there's thousands of batays in the Dominican and not everyone is considered Christian. Uh, there's an old saying that the Dominican Republic is 80% uh, Catholic, 20% Christian and 100% voodoo. Um, so in order for us to go, uh, to a particular bate, they've got to have a, a church there and they've got to want us to come. So there is an opportunity to, uh, um, to share the gospel, um, but lots of times they already have a church on, on the bate. Um, so sometimes if we have extra people, we'll send a team out to uh, give food. Um, and we'll pray over it and bless them and, and do it like that. Um, we don't go and preach per se. It's more of a service orientation. Um, but there is opportunities like uh, I've learned a couple phrases in Haitian Creole. And I've shared them as uh, people have left and, you know, like, la paix avec ou, peace be with you. And... Um, the, they'll turn back to me and, and, and just their eyes pop out of their head. It's like, oh, he just spoke in Creole. You know, so it's kind of a, a little bit of sharing, but we don't go and preach. There have been times where um, teams would go and minister with us to Bates and they would put on like a VBS program or something like that. But um, our primary goal is for health care out there. Yeah. 
Okay. Uh, what is the name of the program or organization, and would we donate to the organization or to you? I love money. Money, money is great. <laughs> um, it's uh, American Baptist Churches of Maine is our umbrella group. However, uh, you don't have to be Baptist to go. I've had uh, friends go that are Catholics, atheists, Lutherans, as long as you're respectful. But if we don't really have an umbrella name, but if, if we had to have one, it would be American Baptist Churches. Um, so if we, if we wanted to donate, we could donate through you. You could give it right to me. And um, and I think it would be nice if we could have a reminder as your trip comes up to put it in front of us because... You mean like a donations box? Or or just the trip is coming up. Sure. You know, that type of thing. So sure. if somebody wanted to... But they... yeah, um, like being in the pharmacy, um, I tend to do a lot of behind-the-scenes um, work. So I'm responsible for every last tablet that gets across the border. Um, and I have to have all kinds of documentation just in case I get stopped at customs, so, which happens more often than not. Um, so I have to provide every single tablet of what's coming with the proper documentation, which seems to change every year, just in case they ask for it. But yep. Hi. Um, In Haiti, there are kidnappings of medical people, missionaries, etc. Mm -hmm. Does that cross over into the Dominican Republic, and how safe does your team feel? That's an excellent question. Um, so where we are over in La Hermana, um, I was expecting the map there. Um, where we are in La Hermana is pretty far from the border. It's about four hours away. Um, and we don't go, we've never been that far over. The furthest that we've been over is just Santa Domingo. Um, if we're in an area, say we're in a batay that um, is not safe, and there have been times that we go to a few batays that are considered uh, Haitian gang areas, um, our translators will just tell us, listen, nobody wanders off during lunch. Everybody has lunch right here. Um, being on a batay, the only time that I've really not felt safe was when I almost got trampled by a donkey, um, <laughs> chased by a turkey. Uh, for the most part, um, safety isn't an issue. Um, I will say this, the American dollar inflation um, is really, uh, the economy in the Dominican Republic is not good. When I first started going there, uh, it was $1 is eight, uh, eight pesos. Now it's gotten up to the 50s, 40s and 50s. So um, unfortunately they look at us as uh, millionaires because we got white skin. And um, oh, they must be here on vacation, you know. They don't think, oh, maybe he's a missionary trying to help our people out. Uh, there's been times when, uh, where we stay is in the city and right down the street is a jumbo, which is like a super Walmart. And there's been times when uh, we were buying supplies that we needed. And so we bought like $100 worth of sandwich bags, okay? And there'd be teenagers behind us that are making fun of us and saying, 
what are you guys doing with all those bags, you know? And then I'll turn around and say, oh, actually, these are for people in the, in the batets. We're going to be using them to dispense medicines. And then they crumble because they feel like idiots that we're here to help their people out and do that kind of stuff. And then, so, um, one time I did not feel safe uh, walking around the streets of the Dominican. We keep groups of three and out of the, you have to have a group of three to travel and one of them has to be a man. Um, but uh, walking around the streets, I did not feel safe because my friend Nolly and I were walking and there was a bag of trash on the side of the sidewalk. There's trash everywhere. It's not uncommon to walk past a bag of trash. But it isn't uncommon when somebody jumps out of that bag of trash and tries to scare you. And that's what happened. And so I worked on my best kung fu moves and got Lolly away from him. I turned around and it turns out it was Dominican Candid Camera because all these cameras came out of all the shops and everybody was laughing and it made it even more funny that I was a gringo. So that just was the icing on the cake. And then after I found out what was happening, I gave the guy a hug and a handshake and we went on our way. So that was my, that was my safety, that was my one safety issue. There have been problems. Um, we tell people not to wear a lot of jewelry. Um, because there was a time that um, a girl had a few gold necklaces on her neck and this moped came up and yanked the necklace right off of her neck. Uh, one of the security guys outside of a bank that was right across the street got off his sawed-off shotgun and took shots at the guy. So that was pretty interesting, but um, for the most part, you gotta be smart. We go over all of that, all of those types of issues when we're down there. But as far as um, what's happening in Haiti, that doesn't really affect us. And we, it's always in the back of our mind. You know? But we feel very well protected. We have a lot of the same translators year after year. We have a lot of people looking out for us while we're there. So that's, that hasn't been an issue. Uh, during the times when there's been revolts, they're planned, believe it or not. So everybody knows that there's going to be a revolt on this day at this time and so we just stay inside we don't we don't uh, get involved but any other questions i could talk forever stan said i could have three hours if i needed it <laughs> it's not so much a question but just to kind of for your information the missions committee does have a fund to help anybody who wants to go on the missions trip be able to go. Yes, they do. do. Any other questions? I love talking about it. Especially now that I got over the eating, uh, reading part and didn't cry, so. clarify what the missions committee has voted that that would be available to someone here from Shiloh not just from anybody in town that might want to go okay 
Thank you. Give Eric a big hand. Thank you very much, brother. God bless you. The work that you do. Okay, folks. We, I think, should say a little prayer for Eric in this ministry, and then we're going to move on to the next phase, which will be off of Facebook, where we are going to be giving out four certificates of baptism. Are the Baloo children ready? Well, let's pray. <laughs> let's pray for Eric and his ministry first. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the information of this wonderful ministry that Eric is involved with. Father, we ask in Jesus' holy name for your blessing upon him, upon his family, upon anyone who feels called of you to go and assist Eric in some way, shape, or form. I pray, Father, you give him wisdom, protection, provision, all that he needs, and fill him and whoever goes with him with your Holy Spirit so that the love of God can be seen in these people as they provide this loving service. Father, thank you again. We, again, we pray for your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.